Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Hello and welcome back to our second Men in Therapy episode. Today we have a special guest, uh, someone that both Crystal and I know. Um, We are very excited to have him on because he was just super down to do the episode really quickly, no questions asked, and just really willing to talk about his experiences in therapy. So we greatly appreciate that. Yes, of course. We definitely are super excited to have him. And let me me give him the introduction that he deserves, okay, y'all? So today... We have Marcus Johnson, who is a scholar of race politics in the Americas. Through his scholarship, he seeks to examine how race and racism affect electoral politics beyond their effects on the attitudes and identities of voters and politicians. Specifically, he is interested in how historical and contemporary inequalities generate important differences in how Black and non-Black voters experience elections and democracy. Marcus teaches courses on comparative politics and identity politics in an effort to empower students to name and challenge systems of inequality and oppression. In the fall of 2021, he will join the government and politics department at the University of Maryland College Park as an assistant professor. And if y'all are like, what? This is like, Major, yes, it's major. Hello, changing the world over here, educating one student at a time. (laughs) Appreciate that. That was way more generous than I thought. (laughs) No, we got to give you credit. Yeah, we were just talking about this. (laughs) But before we actually get into who he is, how smart he is, because I mean, if that introduction didn't show it, um, I'm sure he'll show it throughout the episode. We are going to do our check-ins. So let us know how you're doing. Yeah. Um, I So right now I'm in the middle of a lot of like major life changes. I'm moving out of New York City. Um, my partner just recently went back to, to Portugal after us being together through most of the quarantine. So kind of a mix of excitement and anticipation about the, the new job and moving to, to Baltimore, but also like really kind of feeling the uncertainty of not really knowing exactly what's going to happen next. Um, You know, kind of have a little bit of a period of time between when I'm going to see my partner next. Also, not exactly sure how this move in is going to go. So like, generally, when I'm in this space of not knowing what's coming next, I just kind of am processing this general anxiety and kind of waking up with a little bit of like butterflies in my stomach. Uh, I'd say that's about how I'm feeling like positive and hopeful, but also just anxious. (laughs) I totally understand that. I feel like I'm currently trying to make some transitions and some changes in my life and trying to live in that ambiguity and that space of like, one, not really sure what's going to happen. But two, I think also letting go of that fear and like deficit mindset of like, I don't deserve, I'm not going to get, just take what you can get because 
you know, like you got to just hold on to whatever comes your way. So not exactly the same, but um, it did remind me of, of that because it's like sometimes you just have to bet on yourself, put faith into the universe and hope for the best and try to ease the anxieties because it can get in the way of you progressing. Um, it doesn't seem like that's the case with you. I think you seem like you're very aware, but it's something that I'm actively working on right now. Yeah, I definitely still have that fear mindset too. It's so funny. I was telling Crystal this last night to those listeners who have been religiously listening to us. Um, they know that I've been going through a whole lot of changes in the past six months. And it's really interesting because I had been making very logical decisions, knowing that these things were good for me. But the feelings were like all the way in the back trying to like catch up. And I'm in a place where I'm, my feelings and my, my logic, they're just slowly starting to, to match with each other. And sometimes they, they miss each other because they're still not used to it. And, you know, so right now I'm taking a break. I'm on vacation. And you would think that <laughs> I would be happy and calm. But this morning I still woke up with like this knot in my stomach. And I'm like, yo, what is it? what is it? Like, I'm not sad. I'm not this. I'm not that. Like I go down the list and it's just my body's response to what I have been through. Um, and sometimes that anxiety, that underlying feeling is, will the, you know, is that the right thing? Waiting for the other shoe to drop, but like in a bad way. I don't know if that's, <laughs> if I'm saying that right, but also it's, it's the unknown and it's, it's like, yo, like I can't get rid of this damn anxiety, but that's the thing. You don't go to therapy to get rid of it. You go to therapy to understand it yeah. and manage it differently. Manage it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's how I'm doing. Okay, so you know what? We just jumped right on yeah, it. We're talking about therapy. We're talking about anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcus, tell us a little bit about your therapy journey. When when was the first time that you realized you wanted to go to therapy, that this was something that you needed or wanted to do for yourself? Yeah, so I can actually go back a little bit further to the first time I went to therapy. So I actually was in therapy at age seven, eight. I uh, grew up in a very religious household. The church that I went to was very much kind of about like heaven and eternity um, and salvation. And so I, you know, kind of went through that process of giving my life to Christ, as they say, at, at six. And a year later, uh, that's intense, extremely intense. Yo, extremely I just intense. Like six is six is Extre- like that's a baby. Extremely intense. <laughs> and you give yourself to somebody at six. Oh my god, just yeah. the mind fuck. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So at six, I, I made this decision. What felt like a decision of mine. Um, and at around age seven, I I remember like just all of a sudden I had this compulsion to tell my parents every single thing that I did wrong. Like if ever I did something that I felt was bad, if ever I did something that I thought would make God upset or my parents upset, like I would tell them. And it started off as I think my parents being like, oh, this is so cute. Like he's so earnest about this. But the more and more it happened and the more like minute the things were that I was telling them, the more that like it just drove them crazy and it was an anxiety. Um, And so my parents made the decision to send me to a therapist, which I didn't really understand it as that. I thought it was like just another fun thing that I got to do in the evenings. Um, And so I went to therapy for a couple of months and it wasn't until years later that I understood what that was. I was like, no. Like you, you had some really serious anxiety and, and you needed counseling. 
Um, mm. So that was like my first experience with it. And I think it colored my understanding of therapy for years after that, because I thought that therapy was something that you only really do when you're like in serious crisis. And so I had my next serious crisis in graduate school. And after my first year, um, I realized at that point that I was no longer Christian, um, didn't identify and, and believe that way anymore. Uh, I was terrified to tell my parents that, terrified to, to, you know, kind of come out in a way to my family. And I also was in a relationship that was difficult. Um, and so I went to therapy. We had like a graduate school counselor. I think we had 10 free sessions. So I used every single one of those sessions, like going in there, just like spilling my heart for an hour. Uh, and the therapist was awesome. I think they did cognitive behavioral therapy. So very much like this is how you process and deal with your anxiety. And so that helped. I realized I liked it. But at the end of those free sessions, I was like, well, it's not free anymore. I don't know if I'm going to still do this. So I stopped going to therapy for a while. And then something else happened later in life. And I was like, I got those free sessions because it's been a year. Uh, and so I, I went back. And that's when I realized that, you know, my insurance would cover enough. Um, and so that I went to counseling outside of my institution. And pretty much since 20. 17 the spring of 2017 i've been in therapy it's a, a weekly thing i stopped doing cbt uh three years ago and started uh psychoanalytic therapy which is amazing sometimes i have weeks where i'm like you know what i actually feel good like why am i talking to you and sometimes i come in there and literally i'm talking from <laughs> jump until like the end <laughs> <it's not good. laughs> so yeah i you know therapy is now i think a part of a you know, a routine part of my life and it, it will continue to be. You know, your story is so interesting because as you're telling me, like, yes, I'm like, I'm being a therapist. I'm clocking it, right? I'm like, oh, it started here. So you have this anxiety of this all fearing God, right? Because that's mm -hmm. that's what they teach you. Like you have to fear him and then you play that role out mm -hmm. with your, your family and your parents thinking you're doing something right. But mm -hmm. then it becomes path. I don't want to say pathological, but it becomes an er so in therapy in in psych when it becomes an issue is when it, it interferes with your everyday normal routine, right? So then it started doing this thing where you're like, yeah, I can't I can't live my life without having to express what it, the, the the wrong things that I did, and now you're living in fear that you're not going to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Uh, huh. <laughs> 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> and then, it, you know, our idea, and we, Crystal and I talk a lot about this on the show, and we've done like psychoeducational episodes, and we talk about it through our own experience. But yo, your identity starts forming at such an early mm -hmm. age, mm -hmm. and I think that when we're adults, and a lot of the, and it is so easy to to hold off until you have this problem, kind of like what you did, until it becomes again invasive into your everyday routine. It's this thing where like. People don't recognize how far back these things go. And when we start looking at our identity, yo, it's going to start from the very beginning. And if you don't recognize that, like, I don't know, you're just kind of living on the surface in my eyes and you're allowing these things to affect you. So I also think it's your story is super cool because you've acknowledged that, hey, OK, I have this. And even in the, the process of, I don't know, I'm nerding out right now, even the process of you doing CBT, which is a very like step-by-step -step guide to just diving into the sim the symbolism and what you've experienced like it shows your progression so um i think it's really cool yeah i have, I have friends to thank for that honestly 
they're like, you're doing CBT, do some psychoanalysis and see how you feel. Well, yeah, that's what I was just yeah. about to ask what, what made the transition, because I have the opposite. I mm. did years of psychoanalysis mm. and now I'm doing CBT and now I'm like, now I'm like, okay, this is the growth. But I, but I say to people, I, I mean, CBT has been life changing for mm. me. Like I've seen so much progress and it hasn't even been a year of me doing it, but I don't know that I would have gone into CBT and learned and gotten so much better so quickly had I not done the years of psychoanalysis so what have what did you learn I guess about yourself during CBT and then during like while now while doing psychoanalysis yeah that's that's a great question and and I think maybe to your point I think it's having different types of therapeutic experiences or or treatment Mm -hmm. um or I don't know if treatment is the right word but having different types of therapy I think helps you to appreciate what you got from the first and then what you're getting in the second. Mm-hmm. So CBT was the free version of therapy that that I was that my insurance covered that the school provided. So that's I didn't even know what CBT was. But what I was able to develop a language for, and this actually overlapped with my relationship with my partner now, is like just being able to say anxiety and knowing what that meant. Like for a long mm-hmm. time, like I just knew that I felt uncomfortable, um, or I didn't like how I felt, or I was sad or scared. Uh, and then just being able to call this anxiety, I felt immediately gave me some sort of authority over whatever that emotion or trouble that I was having was. So I, I got that out of CBT. I got meditation out of C- CBT, just, you know, simple, like sitting 10 minute breathing exercises, which helped me a lot. And I think though, one of the limits that I got to in CBT is that I was still going always with a specific like thing in mind like i need to like not feel this anymore or i need to like be better at this and then you know you know forget therapy like i don't need it and so that i kept hitting that roadblock that i would feel a little bit better i would have a language for something i would be able to understand it but then i would still feel it and so i thought therapy wasn't working And so I was talking to my friends about it and they were like, yeah, you know, CBT is good at giving you like a kind of a set toolkit for managing these things when they come up. Try psychoanalysis because that'll help you to start digging up uh, some of the past traumas or like the background behind what's making you feel these things or why you react to things in particular ways. And so I still, I went to psychotherapy first, like, okay, you're going to fix me, right? And my therapist pretty much from the jump was like, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, a lot of times I'm just going to let you free associate and you're going to be uncomfortable with either my silence or when I do interject some of the things that I, where I take the conversation and he was right. It was really uncomfortable, but I felt like I would leave therapy, even if it was just momentary with kind of a, ah, okay, I can connect dot A to B. Um, and I feel like for this moment that I have some control over what I'm feeling, even if it's fleeting and next week I'm back telling you the same stuff. And so that I think was the motivation for my switch. And I think I'm going to stay in psychoanalysis for a while until, (laughs) until I I start to feel that maybe, you know, another type of therapy that I don't know yet, uh, could, could be useful. So something that I want to point out before I ask my next, my next question is, I don't know if anyone caught that, but literally what Marcus is saying is that life is not linear, right? Life is a whole bunch of random stuff that we have to make connections for and kind of sit down and put the pieces together. And I think that that's what therapy brings to the table. Um, you said that, but not in that 
yeah. focus in that pointed way. So I just I just want to point that out because I think that a lot of people expect life to be linear. And this is a message that I, I feel very strongly about. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> and um, I actually, as you were speaking, I was listening. I'm like, wow, his friends told him to go to psychotherapy? Like, what? Like, my friends don't even think that they need to go to therapy now. So you are, as a man of color, you know, one, I yes, I assumed you had setbacks with your friends, but it sounds like mm-hmm. you didn't. It sounds like you had a really supportive community. And I, I just want to know a little bit more on why you think that is. Like, what position were you in that, that looks so different from mine, right? Because I identify as a person of color, and my experience is the stereotypical mm-hmm. one. Yeah, I mean, so... My- Growing up, therapy was definitely like stigmatized. Like I don't, <laughs> I could probably count on my hands the number of people that I think my family has told that I was in therapy when I was like seven or eight. Like that's it's kind of embarrassing. And and I remember we would go on vacations, and like my parents would like kind of give me the talk. Like, all right, look, <laughs> we're gonna have fun. We're gonna have a good time. Like if something happens, like come talk to us, but like, we're going to have a good time. Right. Mm. And so like, it, it is it, like, it's, and, and they were doing, I think they were doing what felt right to them. And I, I don't fault them for that, right. but it kind of was, you know, and is something that is not necessarily something that we, we openly talk about. So I think the two kind of major things that changed my maybe network around therapy was going to graduate school, um, where I was the only black person in my cohort. And at the time of being in graduate school, I think by the time I graduated, there were four of us in our program. And this is a pretty highly ranked program that historically has not done a great job of recruiting uh, black graduate students. And I think that's changing, you know, talking to black and honestly, all of my grad school friends, I realized people are in therapy. And I was like, oh, so you're in therapy and and you're telling me that you're in therapy. So maybe this isn't something that I need to feel as like ashamed about if I feel like I have a problem and I need to talk to a therapist flash like a couple of years forward, my, my best, 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 best homie back home was going through a lot of life changes. And he was like, yeah, I'm in therapy. And I was like, are you serious? Like you're in therapy too? Like I've been in therapy for like two years. And so then we were like kind of vibing off of that. And again, it kind of, it made me realize like, you're not weird. And if anything, like not to shame people, but like, maybe it's weird not to go to therapy. Maybe it's weird to think that like, you always have to process things on your own. And then my partner, like when we got together, like she is 100% talks about her mental health openly. Like mental health is not a stigma. I think those combinations of things, like to Sasha's point, there may have been times where I was kind of like, ah, maybe it is a little bit embarrassing now that I'm still in therapy. Like I probably won't tell people, but like at different phases of my life, I kind of had that reminder that's like, no, it's not weird. Keep it up. Keep doing it. Um, others around you would support you. So. Absolutely. You know, Crystal and I talk about it all the time. We've been in therapy for 10 years, almost, the both of us. So, Dope. right, Crystal? Yeah, I've been for like eight. Yeah, like eight. Yeah. Um, no, but I think that that's super important because I, I think um, just to your point about grad school being such a pivotal point, grad school was a place where I could openly talk about going to therapy. So I really like being in grad school. But I will say, like, outside of that community, I was still very ashamed. 
And I do think that exposure or just people being open about it is very helpful. So can you talk a little bit about how therapy has been helpful? What are the lessons that you've learned that you're taking with you? What have you learned about yourself in this process? Um, so I've, I've definitely, I think the biggest thing that I've learned, and it's largely been through psychoanalysis, is that a lot of my core, core, like, anxieties come from, like, my projections of an internal narrative that I put onto what I think others' perception of me or, you know, what other people are thinking. <clears throat> so my, my therapist, he's a, a Freudian and a Lacanist. I hope I said that right. He was basically like, I try to distill the pieces of where I see you talking to yourself and where I see you projecting still that same conversation onto others. And it was like a couple of months into therapy. And when like that finally clicked for me, I was like, oh, so that's why like, the same kind of cycle that I fall into that when I have this moment where suddenly I feel like I'm not good enough, that I'm inadequate, that, you know, someone's not going to be, you know, uh, happy with my you know performance on the job or socially, whatever, that a lot of times that's just me projecting whatever I'm internally dissatisfied with onto like other people. <laughs> And it's kind of, it's, it's liberating in that sense where it's like, all right, I know, I know, I know where this is coming from and I don't have a confirmation from someone else to tell me that this is what they're thinking. And so until that happens, I can tell this voice to shut up um, or at least I can name it. And so that, that, I think that's the, the biggest lesson that, that I've learned just in addition to like making sure that, um, kind of like going to therapy regularly that I just create a routine of these are the things that you need to prioritize for self-care so that you don't get to that moment of crisis and then feel like you need to, you know, take in all the things you don't need to. Yeah. I just, I just kind of realized that, all right, you know what, if I do this regularly, if I make this routine, if I make this kind of analysis, a part of my daily life, I can maybe get ahead of that next moment of crisis um, instead of kind of digging myself out of a hole to to feel like myself again. So, yeah, sorry if that was long-winded. So no, don't be sorry. You said so many different things. So just to kind of address your first point, uh, the, your last point, you're just FYI, I'm very good at noticing when people are solution-based and you mm -hmm. did it again. Uh, sorry, I like doing this. Um, yeah, that's cool. I appreciate <laughs> you're it. You're like, I don't want to be just so I can get ahead of it. And it's like, there's nothing to get ahead of. That's yeah. the anxiety. That's it happening again yeah. in a different form, right? You, there's yeah. nothing. Sometimes if you're in a hole, you just got to be like, all right, technically it's not a real hole. Just accept that you're there. And then the next, mm -hmm. hopefully the next day it kind of goes away. Um, this is hard stuff, man. And I, I was going to ask a question. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. So as you're telling your story, um, I keep thinking in my mind and you, you spoke on your personal narrative being projected, right? Through therapy, did you figure out where this personal narrative came from and when it actually became your own? Because just from listening to your story, I don't think it was yours. Like there, you grew up with a lot of expectations, even after your parents put you in therapy and you went on vacation, they were, you were trying to quote unquote get better. You weren't allowed to be this thing 
which was essentially you. And I'm sorry if I, I'm hoping that you know this already because <laughs> yeah. it seems like you do. Right. So when did, you know, when did it become someone else's narrative? How do you realize how it became your own narrative? And how do you work with that? I know you said that you shut the voice up, but I think that that brings up a lot of feelings when you realize that something's not yours. Yeah. And this is something um, that, so my therapist helped me to understand my relationship to the other uh, that I was projecting or, you know, othering my own uh, self-perception. So that was, that was probably like two and a half years ago that we got there. And then we spent the next like year and a half reinforcing that. It's like, Hey, remember that thing I told you you do, you're doing it. And then about like maybe three quarters of a year ago. So when we got like into that first, over that first wave of COVID in New York City, I, we kind of got to that next point where my therapist really started to help me to explore <clears throat> where those different sources of those voices were coming from. So my kind of first real relationship to judgment was in this very like large, massive existential way of like my eternal salvation or damnation, which is massive, like massive. And as a six-year-old, like, I remember I would think, like, so heaven, literally, we're never going to die, and we're always going to be in the same place, always. So, like, just imagine, like, heaven is this, like, tent for some reason. And, like, it was kind of small, and I was like, do I want to be here all the time? This is all I can do and forever? So that was kind of, like, my first understanding of judgment. And then I think from there, at different periods, like, academic judgment from teachers, you know, professional judgment. I write research and then send it for publication. And there's kind of like that external judgment that's going to come from that. And so all of my relationships to judgment, I think, feel existential um, because there's like that massive like decision that you're going to receive at the end that's going to either evaluate whether you continue and you kind of prosper and live happily or whether you get sent down. <laughs> and so that, I think, is one of the biggest sources of the external voice that then kind of gets portrayed in different ways. Like sometimes uh, I can recognize, you know, my parents' voices or sometimes I can recognize, um, you know, old friends or exes or, you know, just kind of depends on what the what the context is. But very recently I realized that connection to existential fate being kind of like why everything seems to have such massive stakes, um, even when sometimes they don't. But I mean, I think when you mentioned um, being, <laughs> you know, super religious at six, and then I think religion can be very complex for even adults to understand and wrap their mind around. So then you're talking to a six-year-old who does not have the skills and not because you weren't smart because at six years old you're not supposed to yeah. <laughs> you don't have the capacity to process yeah. these complex um thoughts right because there's a lot of i think like when we when we teach kids um they do have the space for gray but not too much gray like sometimes they do need that black and white and i think that when it comes to religion there is a lot of gray and i think that where people take that turn because we did an episode on like religion and spirituality is when because there's i feel like there's this fine line and it's very easy to cross it and i think once people cross it it's like well now i can't go back or what does this mean about me and 
and it, it feels like a, a big spiral. So I can only imagine having that start at such a young age. Um, cause I, we heard like, well, I heard it. I'm sure Sasha heard it as well at the beginning when you were speaking about being such a young kid and then saying like, I did this and I did that and I did this and wanting to do everything in your power that your six year old brain could process to like say, okay, like I'm going to be saved. I'm going to admit to my faults. <laughs> and then everything becomes a fault because you're so scared of what's going to happen if you don't confess your sins or whatever that may be. And I will say that Marcus seems, and, and this this is personality fit, right? You think about uh, the, the temperaments of somebody before they even form mm-hmm. their personality within their environment. Sorry, I'm analyzing you, Marcus. <laughs> That's it. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. It's cool. Go I, you, this like symbolic big tent that you had in your mind, most children at that age will just take it at face value. Like, okay, cool. I'm the, okay. Let me go play. You are a, when I love people like that, who actually think, right? Like, so you, you happen to have this mind where you you started to think largely like in big, in big worldly ways, right? Like even I, I have the experience too. Uh, when I was little, like I was like, Oh my God, we're nothing in the universe. Like literally, I was twelve when I thought that, so I can completely relate. And you take you you take it out of yourself, and then how do your parents deal with that when they're not thinking that way either? It mm-hmm. it can be extremely isolating, which is why these these settings could could be detrimental to to people in general, just overall. But in the different, I'm just pointing out the different ways. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> so, I'm not sure if this applies to you or not, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. As a man of color. Are there any conflicting stereotypes that you still that you still battle with? You know, because you seem so comfortable talking about your therapy, which I love. But I mean, it doesn't mean that you've removed from any kind of internal conflict on it. So in grad school, the first people that I heard talking about like their experiences in therapy were white. And it wasn't too much of a struggle for me because I grew up constantly being like the only black person in spaces um, except church, which is interesting. And so, you know, I I grew up in in a predominantly white white suburb and, you know, then I would leave the suburb to go uh, to, you know, Baltimore city to go to church in my, you know, 100% black church. And that was like kind of my experience um, going back and forth like that. So, in some ways, it almost made sense that in this very secular space of my life, this non-religious space of my life, I could explore this thing that would have been taboo back home. And so in some ways, I think that reduced some of the internal conflict because I'm, I felt that duality of existing in different spaces. It helps a lot now that I've kind of grown into my, my racial identity um, fully as an adult, that I'm, I'm so grateful that it overlaps with a time where Black people are talking about mental health, the, the power of, you know, self-care, the power of counseling to, you know, be able to, to look at, you know, different examples, whether they're celebrities or influencers, which they kind of get on my nerves, but still to be able to look and say that, like, no, Black people go to therapy too. And, you know, maybe some of these internal narratives that we have within our communities, or within our families, they exist, but they're also things that we're like questioning and problematizing. In some ways, I just feel like I'm lucky that this happened at a particular time. But the last thing that kind of helped to resolve that for me is I had my sister, one of her her best friends uh, was in a clinical psych program. And so she was doing her PhD when I 
just started mine. And she was like, yeah, I am in a clinical psych program and I go to therapy. And it's like, like my mind just like exploded. I was like, okay, like, so this just, it makes sense. Like you get to this space where you realize that this is a tool, it's useful. And there's no conflict with my identity because I'm still like a person trying to process my space in the world. And this is what this thing exists for. The one identity conflict that I've struggled with is that I've never consistently had a black therapist and I've never consistently had a black male therapist. And one of my free therapists at my graduate institution was black and he was my last therapist at that institution. And I was like, yo, this is what I need. Like, you're able to call me on stuff. You're able to recognize things before I can articulate it. This is just, this is therapy like 5.0. But when I went to them private practice, especially at the place where I was living at the time, and even when I got to New York, it was so hard to find a Black psychoanalyst. And then on top of that, a Black psychoanalyst that was accepting patients. <laughs> and so like I was, I was ZocDoc, Psych Today, like all the you know, different places where people post their practices. And I was calling, you know, trying to find out, you know, can I go to you? Can I go to you? And people weren't accepting patients. Um, and so my therapist is a Argentine Brazilian immigrant. And in a lot of ways, I've, you know, really benefited from that relationship. Um, and he's able to articulate and understand some of the things I say. But I also know that there's a level at which I feel like I'm either explaining things to that person or maybe sometimes justifying myself. And I know in the back of my mind, like, I need a Black therapist, especially since a lot of the things that I'm processing are the anxiety of existing in a career that is predominantly white and thriving and succeeding in a career that's predominantly white, and I write about race. Um, Ooh, Freudian slip. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say I went on Elmer Fudd on that, but I, I think you're, I think you're right. So if there's any identity conflict at all, it's more that I'm looking for a black therapist and I hope moving to a, a very black city and moving to Baltimore city will, will make that easier. Yeah, we can definitely share some resources, yes, yeah. like some directories that are not psych today and ZocDoc, which do tend to be a little more, more white. Sweet. Um, yeah. Like there's a lot of, they're coming up now. It's still, I feel like still on the rise, but um, directories that are specifically for people of color. So I'll definitely share those with you you. um, afterwards. So I know that, um, you know, I'm glad that you've been able to really (laughs) examine, uh, I guess, this journey for yourself. What was it like to, I guess, maybe start telling people in your family? Have you told people in your family? Because it's one thing to, you know, kind of recognize the intersectionality of your mental health and race and how that all comes together to form who you are and your identity and how you show up in your behaviors. But then telling people, I feel like, is a different story. And I think there's a reason why we keep it a secret, because we know what people, <laughs> I'll speak for the Latinx community, what people think yeah. when you Absolutely. are going to therapy. What people think, so what, what was say. that process? Yeah. Um, how they use it against you when you tell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing that helps is that I've been the weird one in my family. Like I'll put that in quotes for probably the past like decade and a half. So that in some ways, like I just kind of anticipate that 
and I think people like write back at me. I was like, oh, Marcus is doing that. Of course, of course, Marcus is doing that. Of course, like yep. you would do. That. Right. Um, but so as like religious and as stigmatized as therapy was in um, you know the church context and family context. I also will say that my church was very explicit about like when people were in mental health crisis, the need to supplement religion with medicine. Um, and so that I think helped a lot that then when I talked to my dad about this and I was like, you know, this is why I go to therapy, you know, he was like, okay. Um, like I understand that. And, you know, t- talking to my mom, she was like, I understand that. The funny thing was that, uh, between graduating, I did a fellowship that brought me back home. Uh, so I was staying at home for a year, which was another major <laughs> life adjustment um, mm. after living away for almost a decade or more than a decade. And at that point, then I was like, all right, y'all, I'll be back. I'm going to therapy. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember at one time my mom was like, so what are you talking to your therapist about? Mm. And I was like, I'm, like, I'm not going to tell you that. And she was, she was joking and she was like, kind of giving me a hard time. But at the same time, like I could tell the curiosity of like, why are you paying someone to tell them something that like you should feel comfortable that you can tell to me? One of the things I was talking to someone recently about why therapy has been helpful. And I'm like, it's the exact, it's the exact opposite of that reason that therapy is liberating. Like this person doesn't know you outside of this little context of talking to them for an hour or two hours or however long um, every week. And there's not that like personal judgment that at the end of that conversation, you get to go home and interact with the people that you interact with without the judgment of what you said, you know, an hour ago. I don't feel ostracized or, or judged for going to therapy. If anything, it's just more that it's something that I just don't talk much about because I know at the end of the day, like, I don't want to then go to the next part of that conversation. Like, this is what I talk about in therapy. Yeah, but but overall, like I, I think people have been understanding, but it hasn't necessarily translated into now everyone's in therapy, and that's what I hope would happen. Um, but maybe that's just my own my own bias there. It's obvious to me that you are someone who takes therapy seriously. Um, you you internalize these things. You work with yourself. Um, and I really appreciate people who do that because I think we need more people like you in the world. Just And not necessarily people who go to therapy, but people who are conscious of themselves because I think this is where a lot of problems begin. But as someone who's been in therapy and as a therapist, I know that sometimes, even though therapy can be extremely beneficial to you, there are days where you're like, why the fuck did I even start this shit? Because it opens up new problems and it almost feels like I love Crystal's face. I, lo- I wish I could show the audience Crystal's face right now because she's like, <laughs> she <laughs> she knows. Um, because <laughs> sometimes, and, and you know, the reality is we're adults. We got to work. We have so much to do. And now the shit that you opened mm-hmm. up in therapy is interfering with your life. So my question to you is what helps you stay motivated, especially mm-hmm. during those times? to continue yeah i mean i feel like sometimes my relationship to therapy is like a relationship to a diet where it's like i know Mm. i should go to therapy this week but you know what like i'm super anxious about whatever project or thing that i need to do right now i'm just gonna like last minute text my therapist especially since we're doing tele like teletherapy has made it really easy to just be like i'm gonna cheat this week and not go to therapy and Mm. i'll message you i'll apologize but like sorry i'm busy 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely have those weeks where I, I cheat on therapy. But the thing I think that that motivates me is still remembering that even so if I've gotten to that point where I feel like I need to do that, then that is a moment where you really need to step back. Um, and so kind of reflecting on what got me there um, keeps me motivated. Yeah, I mean, my, my therapist will tell me, <laughs> like, he's he's pretty blunt. Um, but also, I think being surrounded in a very personal way with with people that model the, the importance of therapy. Um, so in quarantine, when it was just me and my partner, she would have her teletherapy with her Portuguese therapist. So she's on the phone talking in Portuguese two times a week, you know, doing her thing. And I'm like, all right, if she's doing it, I got to do it too. Um, and so I think just having a, a routine and an environment that encourages it, that normalizes it, that ha has helped a lot. Because I, I think I would have stopped, especially during this pandemic, I would have stopped. And then I'd, I'd, I would not have been better for it. Shout out to your partner, too. I've been to therapy twice a week before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I remember those days. So how have you, I mean, I guess you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but how have you internalized what you've learned about yourself on an emotional level? How has the narrative of who Marcus is transformed throughout your therapeutic journey? Well, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. And maybe it's hard to answer because it's something that I'm still like trying to figure out for, for myself. I'd say going back to something I said a little while ago that being able to, to label things and name things and kind of start from a premise of like, I can recognize this is I think a huge tool that I've gotten from therapy, something that I would have, like I, I had lots and I can look back at my life and, remember lots of moments of anxiety that I had literally no tool toolkit for. And so I would just wake up with this like 50 pound weight on my chest and I would just spend the whole day with that weight on my chest. I didn't know that there was something that I could do to first of all, call that what it was and then work with myself internally or, you know, call my therapist. Um, so I think, just having the tools and the language to name and recognize um, anxiety when it comes has been probably the biggest growth out of therapy that I've had. In terms of knowing myself at a, at a deeper level, I'm still, I don't think I have a good answer yet because I don't know that therapy has fully answered that for me, except that now I can kind of trace a little bit of the, the origins that we've talked about and you know, in religion here and family there. And so I'm, I'm sorry, your, your, your question was dope and I, I don't have a, a full answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, well, one, I feel like you answered. He did, he answered it. So when you own this anxiety, it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of your identity. You wake up with 50 pounds mm -hmm. and you're like, ah, what's wrong with me? But the minute you actually have the words as in, or how you say it, the tools to label it, it's separate from you. It's not within you, right? Like it's not something that is Marcus. So whether you recognize it or not, you're actually getting more closer to the, the essence of you without all the junk that kind of was placed onto you, right? So I think it has helped you figure out who you are. Maybe you're not officially 
viewing it that way, but I, I give you permission to. I love giving people permission. It's one of my favorite things because actually you have. Like, you know what's yours and you know what's not. You know yeah. what you want to do versus like, mm, and you said it earlier, that's the voice of an ex-partner. That's the voice of my parents. That's the voice of the church. Like, I'm not going to kind of fall into this because that's not necessarily what I want. So yeah. I would actually challenge you in, in a very positive way to, to recognize that, yo, you know who you are. Um, whether that, that's, that's my read off of you, just FYI. Yeah. I, for me, I read it as you're kind of like, like it's see, like you're in the jungle and you're kind of like working your way out, mm-hmm. right? Like to, to, to come out on the other side. And I feel like maybe you're still working. Mm-hmm. You, you can't forget that you've all, you already like made, you've, you've paved this entire path mm-hmm. along the way. Right. Like, so don't, don't forget that path. But I understand. Cause you're looking ahead. You're like, well, I don't see the light. There's yet. still a lot of trees <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, before we go, I do want to ask you, do you have anything that you would like to let our listeners know about therapy and even specifically men, mm-hmm. um, maybe any men who are out there who are listening to you? Like, what is the message that you would like to relate to them? I mean, the, I think the, the bigger the bigger message uh, for, for men generally is to drop the pretenses and, and attachments to, to gender that I think hold us back in, in, in so many ways in the moment when we can, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying to let go of a gender identity because gender identities can, can be beneficial, but the moment that we let go of expectations attached to gender I think is the moment when we can truly be like freely ourselves. So like I'm wearing purple. I think I've been wearing purple all week and purple is like, and particularly the shade of purple is probably not like a common color that you like see men wear. Um, I've been like experimenting with like painting my fingernails over quarantines, like nobody's seeing me. So like, so what? And like, I think the freedom of breaking some of those norms opens so many doors in front of you to, you know, be yourself and then deal with yourself. Um, so Mm. yeah, my message to, to men generally would be that therapy is just another tool that can open up the possibility for you to freely be yourself without the expectations and judgment of like what people expect you to be. That's kind of what I would share. You know, therapy, I think, is attached to just a broader bucket of tools that we can all access if we kind of let go of some of these expectations and, and pretenses that we that we might carry on our, in our daily lives. Yeah. And just be brave. Take a deep breath <laughs> and and show up as yourself. I believe in you. We're going to be cheering you on. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> in spirit. So, so know that, you know, you're not alone. And like, There's- likewise, I'm already subscribed uh, to, to the podcast. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I get the, get the weekly updates. Like I'm going to be following y'all too. And the moment that I, I hear an ad in this podcast, I'm like, uh Oh, there you go. And I'm like- <laughs> <laughs> From your mouth to whatever's up there. to su- yeah. the universe is here. The universe. All, all yeah. of a sudden you're going to start getting cash app requests from Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> We know, we know who's been here since they were. <laughs> right, right. 
I really appreciated this. This, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. No, thank you. We were the ones who are honored. So thank you. Um, So thank you everyone for our episode. I hope that you were able to enjoy it. I know I learned a lot from Marcus um, and I, you know, hope that you all do too. And I'm going to need y'all to take a page out of his book. Y'all need to subscribe. Hit that link. Hit that link. <laughs> yes, leave a review. Uh, you know, do all of that. And make sure to follow us at Never Told Us Pod on Instagram or email us at Never Told Us Pod at gmail.com. And make sure to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us. <laughs>